0: Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Good morning, church. Can you all hear me? Am I coming through? All right. Good deal. We're, uh we're continuing our Renovate series this morning. So excited to continue that with you today. We're going to be in the book of 1 John, uh, but we are going to start our service uh, very different. We, we never do this, in fact. But uh, last year at about this time, we took a spiritual survey. And those of you who were with us at that time, this is going to look incredibly familiar because it's the same survey. Uh, part of the reason is we want to see maybe where you might have personally felt growth or maybe this was a tough year. I don't know. Or But we've also got some newer folks in here, too. So we kind of want to re-engage the material re-look at what it looks like to reach, uh, reach our city for the Lord Jesus. And so this is part of our, our push to this thing we're trying to start called gospel saturation. What would it look like to saturate our community with the gospel? And it begins with kind of an awareness of where you are. And so we're going to put an a, a actual timer on the screen. Uh, Nate, you know how to do that, right, buddy? We're going to put a message up for 10-minute da- uh, countdown. If he doesn't, maybe Jacob knows. Somebody help him. Um, but if you have the Church Center app, if you don't yet, go ahead, Nate, and pop up um, the next slide there for us. There's a QR code on this slide. We only have a few hard copies, all right? And so those of you who have a smartphone, which is maybe all of you, so don't try to fool me. <laughs> If you will do it online, it's extremely easy to do on the Church Center app, and so download the Church Center app real quick. This is one of the rare times you have permission to play on your phone in church, and so go on there, jump on the survey, we're going to give you, well, Nate's already started the clock, so get after it! Okay, thank you, church. If you're still working, please finish. Um, We do want to know... This um, this is helpful for us moving forward. It's kind of nice just to sit quiet for a minute, too. Anyway, anyway wasn't it? Kind of interesting. I've got four kids at home, so those moments are rare. And the rain was pouring. That was kind of cool. But uh, hopefully hopefully, that was somewhat thought-provoking, even just taking it. And so we're going to let you know in two weeks. We're going to kind of cast some vision in a couple weeks together. We're going to present this survey, this, whatever whatever we discover about our church, not just our campus here, but in Wilson as well kind of compile all this data and figure out where we feel like we are and what that means for us moving forward. And so getting into today's topic is all about this. This survey was this idea of what it looks like to be transformational and to be transformed. And that's certainly what we're trying to do in this series is this idea of of renovation, which is just another word for transformation, really. And today we're going to talk about something that's somewhat different than where we've been. We've been really focused on the mind and the heart and the feelings and and those things like that, and all of that needs to re-engage the Lord Jesus, but one that we often push aside is our relationships to others. We think for some reason that everything that's spiritual has to do with a vertical relationship, and it's simply not so, and so I want to remind you of our series theme verse, which is Proverbs chapter 4, which says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Dr. Willard who wrote the book, Renovation of the Heart, he says this about relationships. Spiritual formation is always profoundly social. Interesting. Anyone who thinks of it as a merely private matter has misunderstood it. Anyone who says, it's just between me and God, or what I do is my own business, has misunderstood God as well as me. For all that is between me and God affects who I am. And that, in turn, modifies my relationship to everyone around me. My relationship to others also modifies me and deeply affects my relationship to God. Hence, those relationships must be transformed if I am to be transformed. Interesting, right? Something perhaps you don't think about that often. Did you really hear that that last part? If I'm to be transformed, my relationships have to transform. They must. Our human relationships, in fact, are all about what it looks like for spiritual formation. And some of it we couldn't even help. There was nothing we could do about it. In fact, the first spiritual forming relationship happens in the womb. It happens right there in the womb. What your mother eats... (laughs) What she does with her health, both physically and emotionally, impacts the child. As soon as the, the, the baby is born, the doctor hands the newborn to the mother, and they, they, they really encourage this now. In fact, it seems like they pretty much demand it, this, this skin-to-skin thing, right? You immediately put the baby to the chest, skin-to-skin, and it does something to con- console the child, certainly, but... There's this built in, it's like God made it or something. It's like God designed it that way, I would say. And it's a beautiful and profound relationship, but it's also terrifyingly fragile because guess what? Moms are imperfect. Children are certainly imperfect. All of us are, are sure of it. We've seen it. It doesn't take them long to show that off. But we as moms, me as dads, are. Are imperfect, and so the relationship, that important spiritual forming relationship, is fragile. The next important one, and ideally, is in the picture, is the Father. Together, this is this sounds strange, but I heard this wording in the books I've been reading, and this is the idea of a, a relational Trinity. I know that sounds strange, but it's supposed to point to the picture of what God already is inside of the Holy Trinity is this perfect love. The father loves the son, the son loves the Holy Spirit, they love one another, they love the father. There's this perfect triune love that God has actually built into the family. That the mother loves the the, the child, the father loves the child, the mother and father love one another, and just the child getting to see the love of the father and mother for one another does something to impact them. It is the most securing thing they can have in their life. And this forms this trio of love, if you will. And that is so fragile. So fragile. And then there's uh, the course of human uh, growth where you've got siblings and extended family and neighbors and schoolmates and friends and co-workers. And then... Eventually, spouses and families of your own. There's all these multiplicity of circles. And guess what they all do? Impact your spiritual formation. And the idea of acceptance plays a huge role. And the idea of rejection also plays a huge role. If you felt rejection from a mother or from a father, it played maybe the most significant role in your life and your spiritual formation. For some of you, it meant a great deal of healing from the, from the Father. A great deal of, of, of healing from the Son, from Jesus. And maybe you're still there. You're still trying to recover from the pain of rejection in your very own home. It's, it's a shaping thing. And so, just the human experience is such that apart, apart from Christ Jesus, we really only live in two sectors of life Uh, When it comes to conflict. Now, if everything's going great, no one ever really truly fights. And and if we agree on every little issue, no one really has any conflict. But where there's conflict, the human nature is to do one of two things. Fight or flight. Or to put it even better, assault or withdrawal. Because I want to argue this. There are some fights that are worth fighting. There are such a thing as good fights. If me and you get in a disagreement about theology, that could be a good fight if it helps one of us to become more clear and to understand God more. If me and my wife get into a fight and it's about how to raise the child, that's a good thing to decide and figure out. It's a conflict we should have. But the word assault is better. That is the type of fight where your only goal really is to damage and break the relationship so that you don't have to see this person anymore there's a lot of you that that's your go-to. When you want to break a relationship, you're aggressive. You assault. Then there's another great amount of you that in order to break the relationship, you disappear. You withdraw. You pull away from the table. This is one of the two ways that you will see humans interact when it comes to conflict. And apart from Christ Jesus or just really good training, but Christ makes it so much easier. Apart from Him, that's the things we're going to naturally lean on. So we have to ask ourselves as we dig into the text today, how are we hurting each other? What is our natural tendency? I can tell you right now, I'm kind of non-confrontational. So my natural tendency is to pull away. If you've rubbed me the wrong way, if I'm bothered by you and I'm not walking with Jesus very well, I'm going to disappear out of your life. It's my bent. It's how I often relate to people. And so I have to observe that and go, that's not who Christ Jesus is in me. And if I'm to renovate my relationships... I stay at the table even when things make me uncomfortable. Because you know what people are? They're a mess just like me. And sometimes our messes, they really collide. And trying to work the thing out, I need Jesus so desperately. This is why I think six of God's ten commandments address the way we assault or withdraw from one another. Think about it. Honoring our parents, murder, adultery, lying, stealing, coveting. These are all about acceptance or rejection. They're all about fight and flight. They're not about reconciliation. They're not about doing what's right. Six out of the ten have so much to do with broken relationships. We can't help sometimes but hurt one another, it seems. We're relationally broken ourselves. We bring baggage to the table. Every single one of us. And so this is, a good, this is a good word today because it impacts us all. It impacts every single one of us. We're all dealing uniquely with people perhaps in our life that we want to either fight or run from rather than reconcile and, and, and manage and figure it out and abide in Christ in them. So let's dig into this text together. In, a, in the Apostle John's first letter, he's really encouraging believers to let the love of God first heal them and then help them renovate their relationships to others. We can do this. We can let the love of Christ so encourage us and help us that we could get relationships right, not by our strength and our power but his. I believe the text is going to give four really clear ways we can let the love of God renovate those relationships. So, let's go into 1 John chapter 4 verse 7 through 21. This might feel somewhat familiar to you. It's a verse that we come back to quite regularly because it's so informative. Here John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also we are, are we in this world. There's no fear in love. But perfect love, it casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Wow. That's pretty clear. I've often said when it comes to the Apostle John... That he writes in a very, very easy wording. His grammar, the words he chooses, they're not, they're not difficult. If you studied First John in the Greek, it would be like an entry course for a lot of you. Some of the most basic, fundamental Greek words. Yet, the concept is intense and powerful and hard to attain apart from the, the Holy Spirit of God. God is love you know the word love here is in the text a little bit? I don't know if you noticed. It's in here, in fact, I think I counted when I counted 27 times. They've often said First Corinthians, that passage you hear at, at uh, weddings a lot is the love chapter. But in comparison, it's not even close. It's not even half the amount of times that First John speaks of love. A different type of emphasis for sure. But the idea here is if God is love and we are gods, then we are to love. It's very basic math, and yet it's difficult in its application. And here's the first way it would seem that we need to let the love of God renovate our relationships. It's first this, receive the gift of God's love for spiritual rebirth. You know what we can't do? Love others apart from having received the love of God. Not really. We can love them in a human way. We can love them to the best of our abilities. But if we are to love in this form of agape, godly kind of powerful love, we cannot do it unless first we have received God's love ourselves, which comes with forgiveness and redemption and sanctification and all these wonderful theological words that we must receive so that we can look in the mirror and go, okay, I am loved. No matter what our experience, no matter what we had at home growing up, no matter what our life has looked like, we can say, God is love and his expression of love in Christ Jesus for me is a clear picture. That I am something new, and because of that, I can live different. This is true love from God through us. In fact, John is clearly writing that having received the love of God, we can finally be born of God and know God. Until we receive it, we really can't know him. It's somewhat foolish to us as we read the the Scriptures, and pray until first we've received Him. He comes out of the gate, beloved, agapetas, those who are loved unconditionally. And then 27 times, unconditional, sacrificial love, agape. He begins this way and then goes on to say, for one another. And there are hundreds of one another throughout the text. We've talked about this many times, especially in our small group section. This is the idea, certainly of loving those around you, but specifically what he's speaking of here is the love of Christians for one another. And sadly enough, this is an area that the world looks at and is often disgusted, right? This is often an area where they look at the church and go, y'all really don't seem to like each other in there. And uh, I can get that at work, right? We can already have that. We don't need to go waste a Sunday morning and get that all over again. So John is convinced, and rightly so, because Jesus has already said it, that they will know you by your love. And so when they look at us, they go, there's nothing different there if we despise one another, if we're no different from what we see in the workplace, which means we have to do some things different. (laughs) We have to move on from fight and flight to reconcile and abide. We have to move on from the natural tendency of, oh my goodness, Me and Randy, I just don't see eye to eye with him. So instead, I'm just going to avoid him. If he invites me to lunch, I'm going to have something to do. And I'm going to avoid it. If you call me, I'm busy. If you text me, I'll get to it. And I have a natural tendency to do some of that anyway. And so I have to really, really go, Okay, God, if I'm yours and I've been spiritually reborn, what does it look like to do the one another's of this text and really love, really love? That means i got to start treating you guys like I treat my family, who I do treat different. And guess what? You are my family. That's what the Bible teaches. So that is a mental shift that even I am wrestling with, but it's the call. It's the call of the gospel in your life, my friend. It's the call of the gospel. The love of God inside you says, Love others like this. Love them like that. And he goes on, To describe some things that are fascinating. Verses 7 through 10 here is really the first break, if you will. The first beloved. And then in verse 11 he gives us a new one starting kind of a new phrase. And here he says, anyone who does not love God doesn't know God. Okay, we're we're getting that math, we're getting that logic. And then he says something that blew my mind. In, In verse 10 he says, and this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. That's important for my brain. That's really important for me to come back to that and go, there's a reason I'm a mess. There's a reason I have trouble loving the unlovable in my life. It's because the love of God has got to pour out through me. And I don't have it naturally as as a broken man in sin. Perhaps in Adam and Eve we had that, but prior to the fall of man... Perhaps they had this real agape kind of love. But know this, my friend, you didn't receive Jesus. He received you. (laughs) He He came and he drew you first. You said yes, that was an important faith step for sure. But John is clearly saying, we didn't one day wake up and go, you know what I love? I love God. It never happened that way. Instead, he loved you so much that he sent such a clear picture of his love to you that you could not dismiss it. You had to look at the cross and say, I don't know what clearer picture of the love of God is. In fact, I've often said maybe God could have done it a hundred different ways how to save us, but I can't really think of a better picture than his personal sacrifice to us. There's no clearer picture than, than that of love. And so he paints that picture. He does that for us. Something he didn't have to do for us, but he knew we needed it. There was nothing we could do. and We, we weren't just waking up saying we love him. No, we we had to be awakened by his love first. And that's what he did. That's what John's teaching. And that's good for us now in our, our, our human relationships to go, it's not my natural tendency to love, but it is his. It is his. And so, as I walk with Christ and I grow closer to him and I make it my goal to be born of God and to know God, And know this love and and to to abide in it as this text is, is teaching so much. That when that begins to take shape in my life. Now the love of God pours out through me. It's never my love really. I just become a conduit. I become a vehicle for the love of God. This is when humans I think get it right. When Christians get it right. It's not that something significantly changes in us to where suddenly we have all of this loving power. It doesn't happen that way, my friend. You know what really happens? We finally fully submit to God. And He has all of that overwhelming loving power. And He's happy to pour out. And He doesn't run dry. He can pour forever. In fact, that's heaven, my friend. God's love pouring forever. He goes on in verse 10 to say, Then... He's become the propitiation for our sins. Of all of the words John uses, he finally unloads and unpacks a big one. He says, I've been saving this one in the chamber for a hot minute. Here you go, propitiation, and just fires that off, which is this very, very difficult word in some ways to unpack because it can mean so much. It's a loaded term, really. It most closely has the idea of an appeasing, that the wrath of God has been appeased it it has to do with atonement but the the most closest meaning is that it has satisfied the wrath of God that's what Jesus did now we don't like to talk so much about this at church Christians don't like to talk a whole lot about God's wrath we used to a whole lot if you go back in time to like the Jonathan Edwards kind of days we were into it we were very much about God's wrath and you know what it worked it doesn't work as good now because, well, perhaps our society has gotten soft. I don't know. That's my opinion. But I think perhaps there's a, there's a piece of this, of this that we can never overlook. That if we're to truly understand Christ as propitiation, this word, we have to understand that God is just. Perfectly just. And in His love, He has this perfect combination of love and justice he loves us so much that he did something about his wrath but he couldn't overlook it he couldn't just say hey you know what I'll just just don't worry about the sin thing because that doesn't prepare us at all for heaven that doesn't really cause us in any way to understand why we belong there no he did something more and said I want you to know, I want you to really know my love for you. I want you to see it. And here it is. My wrath has poured out and been appeased, been satisfied by Jesus. All our sins. How many? How many of our sins? The word there is hamartia. It's this idea of missing the mark. He has so appeased and satisfied All of our sins have been paid for. Nothing is left out there on the table other than our submission to it. Our abiding in it. That's all that's left is that we would fully give it to him, our brokenness. We are saved. We're born again according to God's love. This is what Paul writes to Titus. He says, he saved us not because of any works of righteousness that we have done, but because of his own compassion and mercy by the cleansing of the new birth, spiritual transformation, regeneration, and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out richly upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is what He's done. All Him. Nicodemus comes at at one point in the Scriptures to see Jesus. He comes at nighttime because clearly he's trying to avoid the crowds. He doesn't want anybody to know that he's having a spiritual struggle To which Jesus has been speaking into and he like answers so he comes in darkness. And we get John chapter 3, one of the most powerful texts in all of scripture where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And he says some things about being born again into faith. He says in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this thing must occur in us where we say, I know the love of God is not in me, but he is God ample amount for me I have to be reborn if you will into that I have to fully commit submit to him he goes on in John chapter 3 to say this verse which most of us are familiar with for God so loved the world that he gave his only son and whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life this is what it looks like God's love poured out on us now we are restored by it and we give ourselves to it now, we don't hear from Nicodemus again other than one little snippet where he cautions the Pharisees to listen to Jesus before making judgments about him. This is in John 7. And then we see him reappear in John 19 when Christ has been crucified. Him and a man named Joseph of Arimathea risk really risk a lot, maybe even risk their own life to make sure they found a good burial location for Christ Jesus. And so... Whatever has happened, it seems that Nicodemus has been healed and been reborn in the text. It seems that Nicodemus heard these words and said, Okay, I get that. I couldn't love God first, but he loved me, and this is what that looked like. And the cross of Christ for Nicodemus was clear sight. This is the first step, my friends. This, we can't do any of the rest of what I'm going to mention today until first the love of God is real to us. Do we say that's not just something that happened in history? That's not just something my parents believed. This is something I believe. I receive it. God's love was for me too. Here's the second way to let the love of God renovate our relationships. It's to abide in his love. Abandoning this former defensiveness. This is amazing stuff right here in the middle of the text. He starts by saying, beloved, God is love. He repeats that several times. And then in verse 11 he says, that we ought to, look at what he says. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That means it's not a, it's not a guarantee. If we ought to do it, it's something that we should do by the love of God. That means it's not going to happen by mistake. It's not going to happen on accident. Now, I, granted this, some people in your life, you've got like a natural bond with. You just bump into each other and you imid- immediately become best friends. You know, it's just There's something about their personality. Okay, wonderful. Jesus has some words for that too. What credit is it to you to love those who are easy to love? Everyone can do that. Literally everyone can do that. It takes no spiritual effort. However, what about those in your life, maybe in this very room, that your personalities don't they don't match necessarily. Your, your disposition is different. Maybe it's people you've spent time with in the past. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a, an ex. There's people in your life. The Bible says you ought to love them not by, because they're wonderful. Thank God it doesn't say that because that wouldn't have lined up with me at all. Oh, people are just wonderful. You ought to love them. No, 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 the Bible teaches a very different story that we're all broken and bruised and battered and we need Jesus really bad, all of us, same boat. Instead, it offers this bit of wisdom. If God so loves us, we ought to love each other. I can tell you this, that if statement, you can go ahead and remove it. God does love us. The scriptures are clear. In fact, beyond just what I read in the Bible, I have seen it for myself and I hope this is true for you, but I've seen God's love at work in my life, even in the midst of great sorrow and pain. And so when I see his love pour out, it does do something to my heart and my mind such that I look at you different and go, okay, help me to see them as God sees them. Help me to see this person such that God's love would pour out. He says you ought to. Why? Because of Six times in verses 12 through 16, he mentions you're abiding in him. The word abide here is clearly on display in the center of the text. We, what is this word about? We don't use abide a lot. We just don't, we don't talk about that a lot. This is this idea of to remain in. It has almost a, a house type connotation that you get in the house of Jesus and you stay there, you're happy there. I, I, I like to get in, in, into, his, into his realm and just stay. I abide in him. I remain there. I dwell there. Now, how do I do that? How do I abide in his love? Well, then I have to actually do this crazy thing. I have to spend time with him. I have to do it all the time. Oh, I had a really good devotion on Monday, Jonathan. Well, how about Tuesday through Saturday? Well, you know. Well, how do you feel this morning? I feel kind of somewhat distant. Well, you, do that to your wife. Do that to your husband. Do you feel distant? You know, me and her didn't talk all day. My wife's not really good with that. I don't know what y'all got going on at your house. That girl got a lot of words. I mean a lot. And I think a lot of women do. It's kind of generally true. Um, men generally don't have as many words. It's just kind of social, social kind of concepts, but... If I spend day after day with lacking communication, there will be distance. It's it's not that we don't understand this, and so if we want to understand God's love and and the idea of I want to hang out in his house, well then he's ready, he's available, he's not going anywhere, he's not moving. He's drawing us close. He's he's that voice in your head reminding you right now, "Hey, I'd like to hang out." He's not doing that in the non-believer. He's doing that in you, Christian. And that little voice, that's the Holy Spirit of God. I'd really, like, I'd really like to spend some time with you. I want to abide in him. You can't do this part without God's love. You can't love others the way God loves them apart from his love. So you better abide. You better get in his house and hang out. Such that this crazy thing begins to occur where he perfects his love in you. This is not the idea that it's perfect, but the idea that he brings it into completion. The word is perfected, teleos is the idea that he would bring it to its end. So the longer I hang out with God, the more his love begins to reach an a, a, a end point in my life where I really get it and I really do it. And then we get the Trinity in view. Did you notice it? Verses 13 through 16 where suddenly John's like, take this for a minute, hold on to this. Verse 13, we've got the Holy Spirit of God. And then we've got the Father God in verse 14. And then the Son, Jesus. He paints this Trinitarian perspective that this is the love of God. This love He has certainly within the Godhead. But also this love abides in Him, in us, through us. That we might testify it in verse 14. We've seen it. We've testified to it. The word testify is where we get the word martyr. In Greek it's martyrio to be a witness. And then in verse 15, this important step we make. So whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God already abides in him. That's the the truth for you, my friend. If you said Jesus is my Lord and Savior, he is the Son of God, you've made that confession of faith, God abides in you. And he doesn't want to be done there. He wants to pour out his love in your life. It's interesting, though, that we could... Kind of halt that. Kind of say, ah. That's why John clearly says we ought to do this. It's not going to happen unless we say yes. Again and again, God, your love, pour it out through me. Abiding in God's love, abiding in Christ's love. We are able to love God and love others, keeping all those commandments. John says in John 15, verse 5, or rather Jesus says, and John writes, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, apart from me you can do nothing. You can do nothing when it comes to these things, or oh, you can do a whole lot of other things. But when it comes to spiritual good, apart from Christ, you can do nothing. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love, if you keep my command, man, commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide, (coughs) excuse me, abide in His love. And so, this is this wonderful picture that Jesus came in the incarnation, the Father loved Him, and then Jesus poured out His love to us, and now we get this whole line of the love of God. This is described so well throughout the text this idea of who we are apart from Christ, that we are naturally a fight-or-flight, defensive kind of people. You get this in Genesis chapter 3. It so begins that Adam and Eve, when they sinned, what did they do? (coughs) Excuse me. As soon as they sinned, well, first of all, Adam makes an accusation, which is natural to, to humankind to say, well, I didn't do it. Every single one of my kids does that. Every single human I've ever met does something like that. That woman you gave me, she did it. What about you, Adam? Did she literally open your mouth and put it in there? And and, uh, uh, uh. No, I saw you chewing. I saw you chewing. You did it all on your own. And that's part of the sin of man anyway, is to be this passive, non-leading mess. And Adam shows that clearly right away. And not only did they begin to blame each other and withdraw from each other, and oh my gosh, look what we just did, but they hid from God. You see the tendency of man on display. Right away we get withdrawal. This is how humans interact. Oh, we messed up. God didn't want to hang out with us. This is an interesting thing that, in fact, in some of your human human relationships, it's not that you want to be distant. It's that you just think this person will want to if they found out what I did. They would want no part of me, so let me go ahead and hide. So they never found out what I did. Nevertheless, our relationship will still be permanently broken, but at least they won't find out I was wrong. What a crazy way we think. And you don't have to go but like a few chapters more to where you find the other form of human relational problem. First withdrawal, Adam and Eve, and then immediately Cain with assault. What does Cain have to do? Good grief, this thing seems so blown out of proportion. I wish somehow God could give me some more insight, maybe in, maybe in heaven. I just want to, I got a lot of questions. How did Cain go from bringing the wrong sacrifice to killing his brother? That seems abrupt. Boy, that escalated quickly, didn't it? Like, oh my goodness, thank you. And it's, it's strange to me that, in fact, God comes saying, if, if you would just bring the right sacrifice, we don't have a problem. What did Abel have to do with any of this? So there's jealousy. There's obviously other, there must be other burden between those brothers that the scripture doesn't describe, but we can possibly infer that. And so instead of making it right with God, he says, I'll take out the competition. Did he really think that would appease God? What happened to his brain? And yet those are the natural tendencies of us. I run from my mistakes. I run from people or I fight them and assault them in such a way that they would run from me. Either way, the same conclusion is what I desire, a break in this relationship. And it's not God. It's not His love. Instead, we see James saying clearly this very thing, James chapter 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have, though, because you do not ask. The problem, my friend, and this is the great news of today's Scripture, the problem is you. It's not the person sitting next to you that you fought on the way to church today. It's not those kids who you've thanked the Lord put back here for a couple of hours. Whew, at least I get two away. It's not them. It's a war in you. There's a war in there where we just don't naturally want to submit to God's love and let it so pour out through us. We would choose many other things. Will you abandon this defensiveness, these defense mechanisms you've put up with people in your life, maybe even with God, that you're holding something back? I know if I fully say yes to Jesus, He may take away some comfort. If if I fully say yes to Jesus when it comes to relationship, I know He's going to tell me to forgive my father, and I don't want to do it. I know if I say yes yes to Jesus, He's going to tell me to make amends with my ex-wife, and I don't want to. You know what? I'm convinced that's the Holy Spirit of God already. Guess what? Yes, that is what He's going to do. You know why? Because God is love. Love. God is love. And I'd rather live my life knowing I did my very best to make right every relationship and have no regrets at the end of my days. That I didn't try with all my effort to show people the love of Christ even when they don't deserve it. You know why? Because I don't deserve it. And yet He loves me anyway and saved me anyway. And so let me go through life and do my very best to reconcile every relationship because God is love I hope that pierces you today as it's piercing me that I would look at this and go there are people in my life I'd like to never see and yet I've got to first let that go <laughs> then in order for me to put down defensiveness before God I have to say my will is not better than yours it's not it's killing me actually I don't even know how much bitterness has harmed me. But I start to see it over time. The more I talk ill or speak ill or mistreat people, the more, you know what crazy thing happens? I become a broken, bitter mess. Instead of finally harming them or damaging them in some way that would make me happy, which doesn't exist, instead I become a bitter person. I don't want that. I don't want to be defensive before God, certainly not that. And I don't want to wreck relationships because I'm a mess, no. The love of God, pour in me, pour through me. That's what I'm asking for. Would you ask for that too, church? That's what it means to abide in his love. God pour it in me and pour it through me. Here's the third way to let God's love renovate our relationships. Let God's perfect love cast out all fear. I was already starting to touch on this just now because there's some some stuff we're afraid of. That's just facts. There's some stuff we're scared of when it comes to relationships. If I let them see me a little too closely, if I let them know me. Now, y'all have to admit something. As a pastor, as a preacher at least, I let y'all see a lot of my baggage a lot. I don't know if that always helps my witness, but at least you know I'm human. At the end of the day, I want you to know I'm just one of you guys and I'm struggling through this material just like you. I'm just unpacking it for you. But know this, this has devastated me this week because there's a lot of places I'm messed up. And I try to do that very well, but I have to admit something. I heard something through some of my seminary professors and certainly through some of my my co-workers in the faith. They would say things like this, and I know this is going to make you go, "Mm, "...that's weird." But I'm telling you, there's a lot of people that feel this way. They would say, don't, don't, certainly don't preach so many self-deprecating kind of things. You don't want to constantly mess your witness up by telling people how much of a mess you are. Okay, you getting that? Well, now there's a reason for that, because guess what you guys could do? You could go see your friends in the neighborhood and go visit another church and say, I ain't going back to Eastgate. That guy is a broken mess. I, I, need, I need to just go somewhere where my pastor has got something put together, right? I need that guy in my life, right? Or, or is it good enough for you that maybe I'm just, I've got a couple of things ahead of you? Or, or maybe we're on par with a lot of things, or maybe you've figured something out I haven't figured out, but I've figured out something you haven't figured out, and we can be the, 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 the body of Christ together. That's right. Maybe that's okay with you. Maybe that's why you linger. or Maybe i have scared the snot out of you today, and this is it. Praise <laughs> God. Like I'm trying I'm trying to give you such clear vision that you either fully buy it and say, I'll die on that hill or you'd be repelled by it and go find somewhere you can really have life. But I'm going to do my best to be clear in my vision and approach. And there's a lot of people in the ministry that would say, you've you got to be careful having extremely close friendships in the church. You might want to find other local pastors and whatnot where you can have close relationships because if you trust people too much, You just don't know what they'll do with the information. And it could destroy your ministry. You know what? I find that sad. I've not done that and yet it is true in part. Because ministries all over the nation, all over the world have been destroyed by people who could not take care of information. And would rather destroy a ministry and a person than hear it and forgive and reconcile and abide. It's funny. I made the decision to live in danger. I'm in small groups. I've been in small groups with the right many of you and you know, I'll just tell you, you know what, this week, I don't even know if I'm saved. Like I'm having a mess of a problem. <laughs> the way I've treated my, my, myself this week, the way I've treated people this week, the way I struggle in devotion at times, there's just been, I'm on a roller coaster ride. But here's what I do know. I want to look more like Jesus today than yesterday. Amen. And this love of God thing, used to almost be non-existent in my life I lack so much natural compassion and empathy for people but you know what God has done provided pain that sounds horrible doesn't it he's pricked my heart though I've lost people there's been hurt in my life I lost a job I didn't think I could lose in ministry. That was like step one of this wonderful journey of, we're going to mess you up, Jonathan, until finally you can be mine. He's doing that in you. That's called love. That's called mercy because he cares more about your character, that you would look more like Jesus today than yesterday. And if that's, his, if that's God's ultimate desire, is that you would look like Jesus and be Jesus to others, then all of them rough edges you and I got, he's kind of grinding them off. And guess what? That don't feel good. That's why this pruning, this thing he's talking about. So, what can happen? That God's perfect love would begin to cast out all fear. This is wonderful. This is so countercultural, too, that you could enter a room and actually be genuinely nice to people and love people without any concern because you're no longer concerned with what they will do or what they think of you because you are abiding in God's love. You are certain you are His son and daughter. You are certain of your final destination. You are certain that God is with you and walking with you today and tomorrow and hereafter. And that causes you to actually be nice to people. Most people aren't. They're defensive and they're scared of rejection. And so they don't want to let people see their real heart because it's too dangerous. And yet, my friend, here's the news of the gospel. It's not dangerous for you. Because you're accepted fully, warts and all. You came to Jesus a mess. You're still kind of a mess. He's working on it. But boy, he loves you. He loves you so much he died. He loves you so much he's bringing you up there. Can you imagine that God would want to spend eternity with you? We often get baffled by salvation and by the cross. Well, imagine a God who would want to spend his entire existence with you. And he does. I don't even want to spend every day with my kids. (laughs) He wants to spend eternity with me. It's baffling. That's the love of God. And it drives out all fear. My friend, if you could really know this, if you could really submit and accept it and have faith in it and know who you really are, fully loved by God, it would cast out all fear. You could start treating people like God treats them. And overlook stuff in their life you wouldn't think you could overlook. Because God has so accepted you. Fear has to do, John says, it has to do with punishment. You're no longer afraid of punishment. You've been redeemed. There's nothing to punish. God's already done it in Christ Jesus. He's, been, he's the appeasing. So punishment is no longer in you. It's no longer exists in your life. It's been cast out. This is why Paul writes to the Romans this, and I almost use this as my center text today, but in Romans 12, he says, Don't just pretend to love each other, to love others. Really love them. (laughs) Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in, Oh man, we don't do this. We just don't do it well. Take delight in honoring each other. You know there's some fruitful relationships in your life that you've observed that you like, I wish I could be that. Like husband and wife who say nice things to each other a lot. Wow. Like husband and wife who say, babe, what you just did in that room, that cleaning was amazing. Like, you, I can't believe that you came home from work and you did all that today. And like genuine honor and encouragement. And not just this, oh yeah, And I'm really good at this. My wife tells me all of the details, good, bad, all of the details I get them. And I go like, yeah, Uh uh-huh, yep, roger that. Like, that's my personality, lots of yeses. I ain't listening to half of it because I'm probably doing something else. That's not honor. What if we could do that? Like, not just do it, but take delight in it. To which he goes on to say, and this has to do with relationships. He says, never be lazy. We're terribly lazy in our relationships. And work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in confident hope. Be patient with each other in trouble. Keep on praying. When God's people are in need, what do you do? You're ready to help them. That means you're prepared. That means you're already thinking ahead of time before anyone needs help. I'm going to be ready to help people. That means I'm going to get my budget right. I'm going to get my time. I'm going to build margin in my life. I'm not going to be such a busy person that I can help no one. So that, and some of us do this on purpose. Let's just plan our whole week, every hour, so that when John calls, I can go busy, bro. Can't help you, and I can really say it. And I don't have to lie. Praise God. What? Now be ready to help. That means I'm prepared. Always eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute. Don't curse, curse them. Instead, pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud. Boy, this last one. I'm glad I didn't preach this one this week. Good grief. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. I don't even know who those people are. Who is ordinary people? But you know, in your mind, you know who they are. As soon as you read that, you understood what Paul meant. Because there's just those people in your life, they're beneath you. Now the gospel says those people don't exist. No one. We're all beneath God and for some reason he loved us anyway. Don't be too proud to enjoy their company. Don't think you know it all. (laughs) Perfect love casts out fear. I want to describe a scene for, for you. I do need to hurry up. Good grief, y'all. There's a scene in uh, Good Goodwill Hunting. Now, I admit, that's a movie that has some language. And if you're going to be mad at me about that, then, again, there's other churches in town. Um, I'm sorry. I've seen the film. I saw the film in a different light recently, though, because I'm trying to be a better counselor, a better, a better help to you all the time. And the movie actually describes a very good counseling mechanism. Now, I... The way it starts, if you've seen the movie, isn't the greatest approach, all right? But there's this scene, and you can bring up this picture. There's a scene where he finally, will, Robin Williams is the therapist. Matt Damon is the one who needs the help. And Matt Damon has been putting up walls with everybody his whole life. And the part of the reason for that is that he was abused. He was battered as a child by an alcoholic father. He's, got, he's had a mess of a life. And so with every person, every authority figure in his life, he bucks against it. Some of you have that story in your life in some sense. You have trouble with authority because you were so broken as a child. And that's his story. And so no therapist has been able to get through with him, but he's a genius. And this college really wants it to work, but they can't work with him because he bucks everything. And Robin Williams finally breaks through after many different sessions of trying. What's, what's interesting about the movie to me is trying a lot of methods that I know. Things that you try to do with people to get them to try to come up with their own solutions. Such that, you know, you present this thing and they eventually go, Huh, I just thought of this amazing idea. And you go, Yeah, you did. Good job. But the truth is, you, you were telling them to do that all along. But you just need them to own that, right? That's good counseling. Get them to think they thought of the right idea. Right here at the end, though, and when they finally get the breakthrough, he tries a method that they don't really teach in therapy so much, and that is love. Love. He begins to move closer to, to Matt Damon's character, And after looking through the notes of how he was beaten and battered and how he's been to jail all these times, there's been all this awful stuff. He's looking through the notes, his rap sheet, if you will. And he looks at Will and he says, It's not your fault. And That's all he says again and again. It's not your fault. Puts the notes down, comes closer and closer. It's not your fault. Opens up his arms. And what does Will do in this? He begins to push him and yell, Stop messing with me, man. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And eventually you get this scene where there's a total breakdown. It's a really touching scene. There's some language involved. I'm sorry. But you know what I found? The world is filled with people who say awful things. <laughs> Ten years in the army, I didn't run from people who cussed at me, right? So kind of looking at this story going, what can I learn? Well, there's something to learn here. That perfect love casts out fear. As you draw in closer to some people in your life, some people who you've hurt in the past, or some people who have hurt you, you begin to come in, I love you. I love you anyway, because God loves you, and you come in like this. Guess what they might do? They might push back. They might get the most bitter and hateful they've ever been as you come closer until finally, the love of God pours out on them, and they can see it. Are you willing to take that risk? I pray you are, because perfect love casts out fear. You no longer worry, okay, they can reject me. Okay, they can, they can dislike me. But I'm going to do everything in my power to show them the love of God. Here's the last way, and I've got to pretty much just tell you it and move on. Let's let God's redeeming love flow to you and through to others. Willard, when writing on this in The Renovation of the Heart, says, Not having the burden of defending and securing ourselves anymore and acting now from the resources of our new life from above we can finally devote our lives to the service of others. It is not just a matter of not attacking or withdrawing, but be chiefly focused in blessing upon those closest to us, beginning with our family members and moving out from there, proportional to our degree of life involvement with others. Since we no longer have to worry about acceptance and rejection, since we no longer have to worry about defending ourselves and attacking and withdrawing. guess what we finally can do? Serve others. Guess what we finally can do? Truly love our families and those in growing circles around us. As he describes to close his letter here, or to close this section of the letter, he says, anyone who says he loves God and hates his brother is a liar. This is what the world is seeing in our, our society. This is what the world is often seeing in the church. And I know we're going to make mistakes because we're broken people. But let's do something. Let's make the decision that we love God because he first loved us. Let's make the decision as a church, as believers, that we're really His, that Jesus is truly our Lord and Savior, and that we'll just take a simple step, and for some of us, it's a hard step, but it's the first step. God, help me to love others the way you love them. Pray that tomorrow morning. Pray that on the way you're home today. Pray that right now, maybe there's someone in this congregation you need you need to have lunch with today maybe come back later on to the Super Bowl party and just rub shoulders with people we're not doing anything spiritual there but anywhere where the people of God are it could be spiritual anywhere where the people of God are His love could pour out in a very mighty and powerful way would you pray this simple prayer with me today God pour out your love in me and through me I lay aside my will, my desire that everybody would treat me the way I want to be treated. I lay that aside because people are going to mistreat me in life. They're going to do what they want. Instead, I'm going to push that aside, that will, that desire. Instead, say, God, I just want people to know your love. I want them to know it. And it's not going to start until I know it. So God, pour out your love. Will you receive God's gift of love? Will you abide in that love? Will you let his love cast out all fear? Let his love then flow in you and through you. Let's pray now together, church. Heavenly Father, we love you. We're thankful, so thankful, for your love to us. We recognize today this mission, this this call, if you will, this call. To love others. We can't do it. We can't do it, God. I know this about myself. We know this about ourselves. We're good at loving people who we naturally are, are, are good with. You know, that, that people that we're naturally drawn to. But there's so many people, God, that I'll be honest, God, they just rub me the wrong way. I don't like spending time with them, God. And that's all of us. That's all of us. But the call you've given us isn't by our power, Lord, but yours. So I pray along with your people. I want want people around me to know that you love them. I really do. If I'm ever to be a good witness, if I'm ever to see this city and this community really come to the knowledge and be reborn in Christ Jesus, I know They've got to first see the love of God. And I'm not really great at it. So God, would you do this this miracle first in me, first in your church, that you would so pour out your love in our life, that we would be able to look in the mirror and go, okay, I know I'm accepted. I know I'm yours, God. I know who I am in Christ Jesus. I know it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Now I submit my will to you. Help me to begin to treat people the way you would desire it, not, not my own will. Because, Lord, there's a lot of people I've fought with in the past. There's conflicts I've, I've been through. There's rejection. There's, there's so much pain in my past, Lord. I just don't know if I can have that conversation again with that family member or that loved one or that neighbor. Or that. I just don't know if I can go back there. And yet your love is perfected in us. And it drives out fear if that's true God so pour it out in me that you would drive those fearful thoughts from my mind that I could look back at my life and go I did everything I could with everything that I had to show off the love of God in every relationship I did to my faithful best to let God's love pour out through me and I laid aside my will the only part that I really could do was to simply say, "All right, not my will, but yours be done, God. And you are love. Let me at the end of my days be able to say with all my heart, God, I'll let your love pour out through me. Not everybody was willing to to deal with that. That's okay with me. But I don't want to be a hindrance to anyone for the gospel. Instead, I want to be a reason that they look and say, you know what? There's something weird about that guy. He loves me in spite of me. Let me be that. Put that... Put that in me, God. Your will, your love, your will be done. Do that in us. That would be a life-changing church. That would be a community-reaching church, the kind of church that says, you know what? We're going to pour out the love of God in this place. And we care more about that than we do our own comfort. We care more about that than any possibility of rejection. We care that the love of God is in us and through us. Do that in us, God. We love you. Help it to start right here in this place, that there would be reconciliation even today among families, that maybe there's a little bit of something, something that's in conflict, something that's got them not seeing eye to eye. Would you resolve that even today, that people would look at, at little old Eastgate Church over here on the south side of Rocky Mountain and go, you know what? I know a few people over there, and they seem to genuinely love one another. They are ready to help. Do that in us. And we can't do it on our own, but you can do it through us. You have all the power. We lay our will at your feet. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.